0: Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you during this very special day, Yom Kippur. We pray that what we do on this day would be pleasing to you. We pray that we would learn the lessons of that this day offers, humility, and uh, providing and uh, looking to you for a provision. We thank you for those who have come out to worship you on this day and according to and, and your command. Father, we thank you. For all things, and we ask all this in the name of your Son, Yashua the Messiah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Y'all may be seated. It's a blessing to uh, have everybody here and those watching online. Yeah, Steve, we were talking before the service, and I said, I thought about naming this uh, Day of Atonement Food for Thought. I I didn't know how that would go, so I, I kept my original name, the meaning of Yom Kippur. There was more of a private joke between Steve and I, but since uh, he brought it up, I thought I would share I'd like to welcome you all to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It is certainly a very special day. It's one of the most solemn days, solemn feasts we find throughout Yahweh's Word. matter of fact, the Jews consider this time to be the holiest day of the year, and I tend to agree based on what I see in Scripture. Now, this is also special for the Jews for another reason, or I don't get into Jewish tradition, but... But, uh, yeah, I think it's worth mentioning. This day uh, ends what they call the Day of Awe, the Day of Awe. Begins on the Feast of uh, Trumpets and goes through then and ends on this uh, feast. Or During these ten days, rabbinic tradition holds, and, again, this isn't scriptural, but rabbinic, that Yahweh judges all of mankind and, uh, based on their deeds, either writes their names in the Book of Life or the Book of Death. So, for this reason, it's also called the Days of Repentance. If nothing else, again, this is not a scriptural concept, but the importance they put on this day, I believe, is important for us to realize and uh, recognize. Now, another point that makes this day, this feast, unique, really from all others, is the information scripture provides. It's amazing the the amount of information. We're going to look at that today, but the amount of information we find on this feast day. You know, normally we have a nice summary for each of the feast days. No, this day receives its own chapter within Scripture. We're going to look at that in depth today as we go through this message. Now, I want to start with Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is a great passage. It provides a summary of all the different feast days we find throughout the Word. So I want to begin there this morning or this afternoon. So Leviticus 23 and uh, verses 27 through uh, 32, verses 27-32, speaks about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So it says there, now we spake unto Moses, saying, on the tenth day of the seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. That's where we get the name from, day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls. How many are feeling afflicted today? Am I the only one? I feel pretty good today, but yeah, a little bit afflicted. I don't do as bad on it without coffee as our deacon Steve does, but uh, I'm sure we're all feeling a bit afflicted as we find here goes on to say, And offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh, and you shall do no work in that same day. For it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before Yahweh Elohim. For whatsoever soul and person, that is. It's nephesh, it means person. Whatever person it be that shall not afflict, uh, be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. So how important is it that we keep this day? Scripture says if we don't keep this day, that we're going to be cut off from his people. It's very important that we keep this day. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, so the day of atonement, that same soul or person will destroy from among his people, you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. We're going to talk about that Sabbath there. It's important. And you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day in the month at even. So the end, basically the ninth day. From even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So again, this is a synopsis of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We see here that it begins on the 10th day of the 7th month. 7th month, by the way, is a very important month based on Scripture. It is called the Day of Atonement. Atonement. The word atonement comes from the Hebrew Kippur. So what is the meaning of Kippur? Kippur means expiation. Basically, what it means is to make amends or to make atonement for something, to cover sin. We're on this day in the Old Testament. We know that Israel's sins were removed through the azazel or the scapegoat. Now, we'll talk a lot about the azazel or the scapegoat and what it represents and what it doesn't represent. We also see here that this is a holy convocation. Very important phrase. Holy convocation comes from the Hebrew Kodesh mikra. And it literally means a sacred gathering or assembly. So Yahweh says that during this time that we're to come together, that we're to worship him. This is sacred. This is not something we can ignore or forego. So we're commanded to come together to worship Yahweh on this day. Now, we also see something else. We see here that we're to afflict our souls, it says. And again, the word soul is nephesh. So we're, we're to afflict our bodies on this Day. How do we do this? How do we afflict our? I know you all know because you're doing it. We afflict our souls by abstaining from food and drink. This is what the Bible speaks about when it says a fast. You know, some people they say I'm fasting today, and they'll say then they're drinking their water. Well, that's not a fast. Now, there's nothing wrong if you want to go without maybe food. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a full fast. A fast is going without food. And water. We'll see examples of that as we go through this message. It also says here that no manner of work is permitted on this day. I want to spend a few minutes focused on this because I think it's really important that we understand what makes Yom Kippur special, even from the other feast days. Now, it says here that this is a Sabbath. Sabbath. We've read that, right? Leviticus 23 says this is a Sabbath. The word Sabbath there is Shabbath. This is very unique. Listen, no other feast day is called a Shabbat within the Hebrew. No other day. This is the only day that it receives this word from the Hebrew. The Hebrew for the other day is Shabbathon. Shabbathon Shabbat. is a reference to the other feast days. And I believe there's a distinction in the level of work permitted. And that's why it uses Shabbat instead of Shabbathon, as we find from the other feast days. Because Absolutely, it says, no manner of work is permitted. And it says, if you do any work on this day, Yahweh says, you're cut off. So it's a very, very strict Sabbath of rest, and I believe is unique based on what we find from the Hebrew. So for this reason, again, Yahweh warns that a person who does any work on this day will be cut off from his people. Let's go back to this word afflict. How do we know that the word afflict here means to fast? Fast. How do we know this? Is it through the Hebrew? Is it through examples? Actually, both. So let's look at the Hebrew first. This uh, word, to afflict, comes from the Hebrew anah. na. Strong's defines this as of looking down or browbeating. You feel a little bit browbeated? <laughs> looking down, a little bit humbled, if you will. Or the Vine's expository uh, Dictionary of biblical words, that's a mouthful, It defines anah as to afflict, oppress, or humble. We're certainly humbled and oppressed today. I think that certainly fits. Nothing, though, is mentioned specifically to fasting. So how do we know this? How do we know anah, humble, or afflict, refers to fasting? We also see this throughout many, many examples in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. So let's look at a few of those examples. One is in uh, Psalms. Psalms thirty-five, thirteen. it says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled, uh, listen, I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. The word humbled here is from the Hebrew anon, same word we find within Leviticus 23 in reference to fasting during the day of atonement. And here we see fasting, or anah, is connected with what action? Fasting. It says that they were humbled through fasting. So we see a connection here between humility, or anah, and the act of fasting. Now we also see an example of this in Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5 through 7 says this. So the people of Nineveh believed Elohim and proclaimed a fast. So again, we see a fast and put on sackcloth, which was a sign of humility and repentance, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Again, another sign of humility. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the degree of the king and his noble saying, let neither man nor beast. So this was not only, by the way, something they, that the people were doing. We see here that this extended even to the animals within the city of Nineveh. Everything, every living thing that they could control was to fast. It says, now notice what it says. Taste, it says, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. This is a true Fast. This is a fast as we find scripturally within Yahweh's word. Jonah here, the prophet, was commanded to go to Nineveh, proclaim a message to the uh, capital of the Assyrian empire of her sins. Now, let me give you a little bit of background of Nineveh. This was the uh, again the capital of the Assyrian empire. The Assyrians were, uh, were were very nasty. They were they were barbaric. I mean, they they would put hooks in your nose and just sort of lead you out. They were known for their, for their cruel, cruel ways. And, um, you know, considering this, they, they were considered an, an enemy of Israel. You can understand why Jonah was reluctant to uh, go and prophesy against such a, a wicked and or barbaric uh, city. But we know at the end of the story that he did, and we see here that they repented. So how did they repent? Or we see here that they repented through fasting. They repented through fasting. And fasting, as we find here, it included going without food and water, going without food and drink. Again, that is a scriptural fast. Going without just one, that's not a scriptural fast. We find one more example of this in um, Luke. So now we're in the New Testament. So it's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. We find it also in the New Testament. It says, And they said unto him, Why do thy disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. You know, this is the same routine. The Pharisees, the Jews, trying to trap Yahshua. So in this passage, they're asking, Why aren't your disciples fasting as John's disciples do and as the disciples of the Pharisees do? You know, what's so special about your disciples? But what's important here is I want you to notice how they defined fasting. It says here that Yahshua's disciples ate and drink, showing them that, showing them that a fast does not include these things, to, to abstain from both food and drink. Remember again that Yahweh commands us to afflict our souls on this day. And that's what we do through fasting. We afflict our souls. You know, one of the great lessons, I believe, of fasting is realizing that we're in desperate need for Yahweh for our daily provision. You know, without him, without his blessings, without his, his provision, we would not be here today. And I believe that's one of the lessons we find through this feast. It's not just humility. It's not just just uh, affliction. It's realizing that we must count and look to Yahweh for our provision. Now, we see an example of uh, fasting. One more, actually. It's not defining a fast, but it's actually tying the Day of Atonement to a fast day. So let's take a look at that. It's Acts 27.9. Acts 27 9. It says there now, when much time was spent, and when Salem was now dangerous, because a fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. Paul admonished them. So in this passage, we see here that it mentions a fast, where this fast is a reference to the Day of Atonement. How do we know that? How do we know this fast is a reference to the Day of Atonement? Go to the Greek. Is 3521, anestia, and it means abstinence from lack of food or voluntary religious. Specifically, listen, it says a feast or the fast of the Day of Atonement. That's what this is referring to, the fast of the Day of Atonement. So when it says that the fast was passed, what it's saying here is that the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was passed. You know, it's interesting too, I was talking to a Brother Jose this morning through a text and he brought up he says you know we're still seeing hurricanes out there this season you know just as it was two thousand years ago we're still seeing it's, It's dangerous to sell during this time because there's hurricanes there's these things in the ocean makes it a hazard but again we see here that the day of atonement in the new testament is called what is literally called the fast And the word means to go without food and drink. So we see here evidence, undeniable evidence from my standpoint, that a fast or that the Day of Atonement is a fast and that to afflict yourself is to go without food and drink. Now, this is important for two reasons. I may have already stated this, but number one, it shows that the feast days are also found in the New Testament along with the Old. You know, Some people, "Eh, these days are dead and gone. They're not needed. Well, that's not what we see here. What we see here is these days are still mentioned in Scripture. If they're still mentioned in Scripture in the New Testament, they're still very much relevant. So these days are not dead and gone based on so many opinions today. Number two, it shows that the Day of Atonement, again, is connected with fasting. This is called the fast. It's called the fast. You know, speaking about humility, this is such an important attribute, I believe, as as believers today. You know, if we're not humbled as believers, I don't think we're going to be found worthy of Yahweh's and Yahshua's calling. We have to be humbled. One of my favorite examples of humility, and I I think this ties into afflicting, afflicting ourselves, humbling ourselves. We saw that with the example of Nineveh. But one of my favorite examples of this is what Yahshua says in Matthew 20, verse 28. I want to read that to you here. Matthew 20, verse 28. It says, even as a son of man, a reference to Yahshua, he says, came not to be ministered, Unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, this is one of the best examples I believe of humility we find in the Bible. The word minister is from the Greek diaconeo, means an attendant to wait upon. It also, is, is where we get the word deacon from diaconeo. We also find the here Yahshua's purpose for coming. His purpose, it says, was not to come to be served but to serve. You know, another way is, uh rendering this as ministered or, or served. And here, again, it he uses the word minister, ministered. I kind of like served better. Served. He came not to be served, but to serve, including the giving of his own life. If anybody, you know, have you ever thought about this? If anybody would have been in a position to be served, it would have been Yahshua. Yahshua could have legitimately been, I think, in a position to say, no, I'm, I'm worthy to be served. But he never did. He never did. You see, it was never his intent to be served. He came to give us an example of how we were to live. And Yahshua shows here that we're to serve one another. We're to be there for one another. We're to help one another. This is an example he showed and He lived. Yahshua taught humility through his life. And, you know, we find in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, it says there that we're to follow in his footsteps, we're to follow in his examples, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. We're to do as he did, we're to worship as he worshipped, we're to behave as he behaved, we're to have the same concern for others as he had. This this is our calling as disciples. We're, We're followers of his. So let me ask, do we do this? Do we serve those around us? Do we show selflessness for those in the assembly and for a fellow man? Or are we always looking out for number one? Are we not serving? or we are not looking at ways of helping those around us? We should be. Because this is, again, what Yahshua did throughout his ministry. You know, Yahshua says that we must become a servant if we're going to receive his kingdom. And I believe that to be the case, that we must Learn to humble ourselves. We must learn to love one another. We must learn to serve one another if we're going to be found worthy as believers. And I think that's a lesson we find through this feast, what it is to humble ourselves, what it is to serve one another. I want to transition now and talk about the Old Testament, and specifically how Israel of old observed this feast. It's so important that we understand how they observed this time. And by the way, I designed a nifty chart this year, so I'm going to show that to you at the very end of reading this, step-by-step chart showing how Israel observed this time. We're going to go through this chapter. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this uh, passage. So uh, Leviticus 20, uh, Leviticus 16, you have to take out your Bibles. I don't have this on the slide. I have one verse there from Leviticus 16. So uh, take out your Bibles or just listen. It doesn't matter. Uh, Leviticus 16, and uh, we're going to go through this entire, or most of it anyway. So let's start at verse 1. It says there in verse 1, And Yahweh spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. You remember what happened, by the way, there? They offered strange fire before Yahweh. Yahweh consumed them because, you know, he, he warned them before that, by the way. He says, don't do that. And they ignored him because they thought they could worship Yahweh in the way they wanted to. And, of course, that did not end well for them. And, you know, it's not going to end well for those today doing the same thing, by the way, those trying to mold Yahweh into their image. we we got to mold ourselves into Yahweh's image and worship him as he defines within his word. So great example there in verse 1. It says, when they offered before Yahweh and they died. Now verse 2 says, and Yahweh said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is, upon the ark that he die not so this is speaking of the holy of holies for i will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat thus shall aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering he shall put on holy the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with a linen girdle and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are the holy garments, therefore they, therefore he shall wash his flesh in water and so put them on. Well, it says here that he appears on the mercy seat. Let's focus and talk just a moment about this mercy seat, Or the mercy seat was the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. It was the lid that, that covered the Ark. Where it comes from the Hebrew uh, Kaporth, and we know that this is where Yahweh's uh, Shekinah would rest kind Shekinah would come down and rest upon this mercy seat, almost, again, as, as if it was a seat for Almighty Yahweh. And I think there's a connection here between Kaporth and Kapoor. We also see here that the priests had to put on holy linens, it says. So, you know, I believe that this symbolizes something special, symbolizes probably purity for the priest, purity, not just mundane clothing, but something very special because it was a special day. We also see here that he washes uh, wash his flesh in water. Now, I believe that this uh, washing is an act of, uh, or was an act of purity, and uh, really, you know, I believe that we see a connection also with baptism, you know, just as we're cleansed through the washing, right, of water, we get our, receive a remission of sins through washing of water. We see the same thing here with priest. a priest. matter of fact, this may have been a precursor to baptism, now some say it was, it's, this basin that they would wash it, that is the original precursor to the act of baptism. Maybe it is. I also think, as I'll talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, the ritual baths that we see so, so common in the land of Israel also ties into that as, as well. Well, I want to continue. Verse 5. It says there in verse 5, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burn offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So real quickly, why do you suppose Aaron had to offer a bullock for himself and for his family? Because we see here that not everybody, we're going to see that not everybody required a bullock. So why do you suppose Aaron and his family required a bullock? Or you know, different animals had a different values within the sacrificial system. For example, a bullock was worth more than a goat. So if it was someone of importance, someone in a certain position that maybe required a a more special offering, they would maybe offer a bullock, as we see here, instead of a goat. You know, in some ways, I just want to bring this up, this reminds me of what we see in James. You know, James, James in chapter 3 says there that there shouldn't be many ministers. That's what he says. There shouldn't be many ministers because he says there, they're going to receive the heavier condemnation. Heavier condemnation. Yeah, you know, this should be a sobering thought, you know, for those in the ministry today. Where much is given, I think much is required. And we see that here through this offering again, that he had offered this bullock, which was more valuable than this goat or, or ram or something of less value. Verse 7 says, And he shall take the two goats and present them before Yahweh at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one goat for Yahweh and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which Yahweh's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat Into the wilderness. So we see here that two goats were presented to Aaron. One would be Yahweh's goat. This would be used as a sin offering. The other would be called a scapegoat or live goat, as we see here. So one was slaughtered. That was a sin offering. That was Yahweh's goat. One was kept alive. And this was the scapegoat or the azazel, as we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Moments. So how were these ghosts chosen? What process did Yahweh use to decide which one would be his goat and which one would be the Azazel or the scapegoat? We actually have a, a commentary on this. I want to read it from the Restoration Study Bible. And yeah, Some of this is conjecture, by the way. When you're going back thousands of years, it's impossible to really know for sure, but uh, this is what scholarship believes happened. The process of casting lots consisted of an actual process. Jewish writers have thus described, this is from Jewish writers, Jewish scholars, says a priest placing uh, placing on one of the goats on his uh, right hand and the other on his left, took a station by the altar and cast into an urn two pieces of gold exactly similar, inscribed the one with the words for Yahweh and the other for Azazel, or the scapegoat. So you two gold pieces in this bag that they'd pull out. After having both shaken them together, he put both his hands into the box and took upon a lot in each that in his right hand he put on the head of the goat which stood on his right and that in his left he dropped on the other. In this manner the fate of each was decided and that is from the Jameson and and Brown commentary as well, an excerpt. So we see here the process by which they would perhaps use to decide which goat would be Yahweh's and which goat would be the, the Zazel or the scapegoat. Now, we don't know for sure if this was exactly the process used, but we do know it by some sort of means of casting lots. And as, as we see here, they would use gold, drop it in a bag, pull it out. The uh, left hand would go on the left goat, the right hand go on the right goat. And that's how they would decide which goat or which would be uh, the uh, sin offering and which would be, the um, Yahweh's goat or the uh, scapegoat. Let's see here. I don't know if I wanted to read that quite yet. So we're going to skip that. We're going to go back. So I want to continue reading here. Verse 11. Verse 11 through 28. It says, And Aaron shall bring... The bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and she'll make an atonement for himself and for his house, and she'll kill the bullock. Now, really, we're going to go through the entire thing. Now, the the entire series of events: what happened, when it happened, how it happened. It says, "Kill the bullock for the sin offering." So, again, we talked about the bullock. He's killing the bullock. This is for him and his family. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before Yahweh and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. This is a holy of holies. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before Yahweh with the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat. You see, he could not look on the mercy seat without some some coverage here. So he took the smoke, the incense, this would obscure the, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, he could walk in at this point. Verse 13, shall put the incense upon the fire before Yahweh the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat and is upon the testimony that he die not. And he shall take up the blood of the bullock and sprinkle sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. You know, I'm sure there's some symbolic importance to the eastward I've never really found what that, what that is. We do know those seven symbolizes perfection, a very important number we find in scripture. So he's to do this seven times, probably representing Yahweh's perfection. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering? So he did the bullock first, takes the blood, goes in, does, you know, sprinkles the blood on the uh, mercy seat, and then goes back out. Now he has the uh, goat. This is a sin offering. Now, remember, the goat, this is not Yahweh's goat. This is a sin offering. For Yahweh's goat was, I'm sorry, Yahweh's goat was a sin offering. This is not the scapegoat, I should say. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did, with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. So he's repeating the patterns that he just did with the bullock. And he shall make an atonement, for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place. You see, this is something only he could do. This is something very specifically that Aaron of the high priest was commanded to do. And by the way, that shows that Yahweh does have an order within his system. He does have a hierarchy. And some people believe it's the wild, wild West, and anybody can do anything. I was talking to a brother recently even about where they can baptize anybody can baptize themselves. No. Scripture has an order, a hierarchy, a divine hierarchy that we find. And we see that here that only Aaron or the high priest. Could go into the holy of holies. No other person was permitted. You could not go in if you were a priest. You had to be the high priest, as we find here, and only once a year, as we read, It says in the holy place until he uh, come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before Yahweh and make an atonement for it. So he's cleansing it. That's what you know, making atonement. He's cleansing these these items. So make an atonement for it, and he shall take the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat. So he has blood from both the bullock and the goat now. And he's taking this outside to cleanse this, this altar. And it says, and put it upon the horns of the altar. You know, the altar, it was kind of square-shaped, most say, and they had horns on each side. So they would sprinkle the blood, this, this remaining blood from the goat and the bullock upon these, these uh, horns and he shall sprinkle in the blood upon it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle, he's, again, he's cleansing these things. That's what he's doing. Of the congregation, the altar, he shall bring the live goat. The live goat. Now the live goat again is called the what? It's called the scapegoat. It's also called the azazel. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. And shall will send him away by the hands of a fit man into the wilderness. So he would literally, he would take this live goat, this scapegoat, and he would place his hands upon the, the head of this goat. And he would symbolically uh, transfer the sins from the Israelites, to this goat. And then it says a fit man, a strong man, would take this goat into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. Verse 22, And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities. All their iniquities. You see, the sin offering was to simply cleanse the sanctuary of the people. But the sins... We're not transferred to that. It was transferred to the scapegoat. The goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. So it's going to go to a place like a wilderness. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. By the way, as I understand it, the uh, according to Jewish tradition, some say the, the goat started coming back. They didn't like that. I, you know, I, I'm sure you wouldn't. So they started pushing the goat off a cliff, supposedly. So that goat did not come back. But here Yahweh just says, take it out, let it go into a place of wilderness or desolation. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offerings And the burnt offerings of the people, again, Aaron had to offer something for himself first. He had to cleanse himself first. He had to cleanse his family first. And then he was able to cleanse his people. But he could not cleanse his people if he himself was impure. Does that make sense? He could not offer an offering for the people before he himself cleansed him and his own family. So he had to first do it for himself. And then he was cleansed and able then to offer the offerings for the people same thing. That's why the bullock was first, and then, and then the, the, the uh, offering for the people. Verse twenty five. It says, "And the fat of uh, the sin offering shall be burned upon the altar. And he that uh, let the goat or let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, because again that goat had what all the sins of Israel upon it, so it was dirty. And afterward came into the camp." And the bullock for the sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that beareth them shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the scapegoat. And I want to begin by reading another note we have in the Restoration Study Bible, and it's uh, in uh, let's see here Leviticus 16 verse 8. And here's what it says: A scapegoat, called the Azazel in the Hebrew, meaning the goat of departure. What do you suppose? Goat of departure. It departed from the camp, right? They took it out. This goat likely represents Satan, who is led away into the wilderness. Upon this goat, Aaron was to lay both his hands and confess over all the sins and transgressions of Israel, in effect, transferring all sin back to the adversary, the originator of sin. Then a fit man, likely symbolic of Yahshua, or maybe an angel even, led the goat away into the uh, oblivion, and there he would die. As in Romans uh, 1620, he'd bruise, he'd crush, this is referring to Satan, all these uh, passages to his destruction. So we see here, again, that the scapegoat literally comes from the Hebrew azazel We believe it represents Satan the devil. I'm going to table that for just a moment though I want to go through the series of events we looked at because there's a lot within Leviticus 16 a lot happens within on this day so here's a chart and I don't know if you can read this or not hopefully you can read it I'll read it to you if not but um, if you have good eyes maybe you can see it if not I do apologize this is the very best I could do So, number one, the high priest sacrifices the bullock for himself and for his family. Again, he had to do that. Before he could do it for the people, he had to do it for himself. High priest then takes coals and incense and enters into the Holy of Holies. Using his finger, he sprinkles the blood from the bullock seven times on the mercy seat eastward. Now, again, I'm not sure what the connection is with eastward. I'm sure it has some sort of symbolic significance. Seven, though, symbolizes the number of perfection. Perfection. The high priest would then leave the holy of holies and then would kill the goat as a sin offering for the people. High priest, uh, and then takes uh, coals of fire and for a second time. Some people have this idea that he only went into the holy of holies once. Actually, went in twice. It was one day. Only one day could he enter, but he actually went in twice. One for the bullock, and again, one for the goat, for the sin offering. High priest leaves the Holy of Holies after he sprinkles the blood upon the mercy seat. High priest then pours out the remaining blood from the bullock and goat on the whole uh, horns of the brazen altar. Again, that was the altar outside within the courtyard. It says there the live goat, scapegoat, is brought to the high priest. So again, he does all the cleansing, and now he brings the live goat. It so says the high priest lays his hands upon the live goat, symbolically transferring Israel's sins to the scapegoat. The scapegoat is taken from the camp into the wilderness by a, quote, fit man or a strong man. The high priest removes his linen garments, bathes, and puts on his uh, normal uh, priestly attire. The high priest offers burnt offerings for the people and himself again, for the, uh, himself first and then the people. says so a fit man, fit man against strong man, then takes that took the goat into the wilderness bathes and comes back into the camp. The remains of the bullock and goat used for the sin offerings are taken outside the camp and burned. He that burns the remains bathes comes back into the camp. So that is, if you will, a synopsis of everything that occurred on this day, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, as we find in the Old Testament. Notice, by the way, that after every action, somebody had to bathe. The high priest had to bathe. The person that brought the goat out had to bathe. The person that brought the remains out had to bathe. Again, they they, they were impure, and they had to ceremonially wash before they could come back into the camp. Now, I mentioned that the uh, scapegoat, or the Azazel, or the live goat, that we believe that this represents Satan the devil. Some people say it represents Yahshua the Messiah. So I want to spend some time focused on this, explaining why we believe this and why we believe it fits into prophecy. So if you would, actually I have this on the slide, you can also turn there if you want, but Revelation 20, Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. A thousand years, by the way, this represents the millennium, the millennial reign of Yahshua the Messiah. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. So he's there for the entire thousand years, for the entire millennial reign. No more Satan. No more Satan. And after that, he must be loosed it says, a little season. So what do we see here? We see that when Yahshua returns, that an angel is going to take Satan, he's going to bind Satan, and he's going to place Satan in a bottomless pit. That's what we see here. It says here that this uh, the Satan will be bound for the 1,000 years of the millennium. So again, no more Satan. No more deception. No more trick- trickery. No more... No, no more of the influence of the evil one. Now it says here again that it's going to be bound, and as a result, again no longer will he deceive the nations. Now, you know, I, I believe we see several parallels here between this passage and what we read in Leviticus 16 with the Azazel. So if you would try to follow me with this. So on the slide here, parallels between the scapegoat and Satan. So what are some of the things they have in common? Whereas a sin. If Israel was transferred to the scapegoat, the sins of mankind will be transferred to Satan, the devil, the originator, the originator of sin. I'm not going to read it, but, you know, we find in the prophets, uh, Ezekiel, for instance, Ezekiel 37, I believe it is, that it says that Yahweh is going to remember Israel's sins no more. He's going to remove their sins. Where do you, how do you suppose he's going to do that? How do you suppose he's going to remove their sins? Where, where are there, you know, sin has to be paid for somehow. And we know that when Yahweh comes, he says, I'm going to remember your sins no more where we believe that those sins will go back again to the originator of sin, and that is Satan the devil. As a fit man bound and took the scapegoat into the wilderness, an angel will bind Satan with a great chain and place him into a bottomless pit. So just as, again, the scapegoat, the Azazel, was placed in a, a, a place of desolation, we see here that the same thing will happen with the the uh, scapegoat, or with, with Satan, I should say, here in Revelation 20. And the last thing here is, as a scapegoat was kept alive, and this point is so, so important. I want you to really keep this in mind. As a scapegoat was kept alive, Satan will also be kept alive for the duration of the millennium. The scapegoat was not sacrificed. That's such an important point to keep in mind. The scapegoat was not sacrificed. Now, for a moment, think about how important this one event will be. Think about how important it will be to have Satan finally removed, to have his influence removed from this earth. you know, I believe that this is certainly noteworthy to have a feast as its fulfillment, as its prophetic fulfillment, the removal of the evil one. No more influence, no more deception from Satan the devil. So again, we believe as the scapegoat was taken out into the wilderness, the sins of Israel transferred to it first and then taken out, that Satan's binding and being placed into this pit is a fulfillment of this day. Now, some believe, again, that Yom Kippur represents the death of Yahshua the Messiah. For those who uh, believe this, here's a few more points. So, first, I want to focus on the prophetic fulfillment. You know, I think we can see throughout the Word that Yahweh's um, feast days are, are chronological, the the fulfillment of the feast days. And I want to give you some examples. So these are the spring feasts. So the spring feasts. So we got Passover through the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So Passover represents what? Represents Yahshua's death, right? This is is when Yahshua died. This is when Yahshua paid the cost through his own blood for mankind's sins. Unleavened bread represents, I believe, his resurrection from the grave. This is when he was resurrected representing, by the way, the wave sheath offering, the first fruits offering we find in the Old Testament, the, uh, the uh, barley harvest. And then we have the Feast of Weeks. Where as we seen in Acts 2, the fulfillment of this would be the outpouring of Yahweh's Holy Spirit. So these feasts have all been fulfilled prophetically. All the prophetic fulfillment has occurred for Passover, Unleavened Bread, and Feast of weeks or Pentecost. What about the other feast days? What about this one and the one before this and the one coming up here in just a few days? What about those? Or those days have not been fulfilled. The fulfillment of those days are still waiting. But here's what we believe they are. Trumpets. And you can see here atonement's missing. I did that on purpose, by the way. That's not a mistake. Some say, you know, we make mistakes up here. We do make mistakes up here. This is not a mistake. So trumpets. Trumpets. What does Trumpets represent? Trumpets more than likely represents Yahshua's coming. What also happens at Yahshua's coming, by the way? The first resurrection. So when Yahshua comes, he gathers the elect, the first resurrection. So Trumpets represents Yahshua's coming and the first resurrection of the saints. So we're going to skip this empty block here. So what's next? Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles. Or what does that represent? Most agree that this represents the millennial kingdom. And you know, if you've ever kept a feast of tabernacles, I think you'll agree there's a lot of parallel between the feast of tabernacles and Yahweh's kingdom. The way we come together, the fellowship, just everything about it. It really represents, in my mind, the the millennial kingdom on earth. So that represents the kingdom. The last great day, The last great day, the eighth day. You know, we know that the feast. You have the seven days of tabernacles, and it says, "And the eighth day." Or technically, that's a that's a separate feast. Whereas eighth day represents the great white throne judgment. We believe that's the final judgment of mankind. That's when death itself will be destroyed. No longer will death remain after that judgment. So, what do you suppose? What do you suppose is symbolized through? The Trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We've already talked about the removal of, of Satan, the binding of Satan. And if you think about it, what happens prophetically between Yahshua's coming, the resurrection, and then the millennium? What happens prophetically? Satan is bound. Satan is bound. Satan is bound and put in this pit for one Thousand years between trumpets and tabernacles. And that's what we believe it represents. Atonement, transference of mankind's sins and removal of Satan the devil. I don't really have time for it, but again, we have many, many prophecies in Scripture talking about how Yahweh is going to remove the sins of Israel, remove the sins of mankind in the millennium when he comes. Where's that sin going to go? It has to go somewhere. And just as Israel's sins were transferred to this scapegoat, we see the same thing will happen in the future with Satan the devil. So again, the fulfillment is the transference of mankind's sins to the originator of sin and the bondage of Satan the devil. Now there's another thing to consider, though, for those who still believe that the Azazel represents Yahshua, his death, and that is two points. Number one, Yahshua's death occurred on the Passover. It occurred on the Passover. This is six months before the Day of Atonement. This is when Yahshua shed his blood. You know, just as we can't get baptized twice, you know, Scripture talks about that, not, not impaling the Messiah twice. We can't get baptized twice. Once we've done it once right the first time, there's no doing it Again. Or same thing with Yahshua. You know, once he's died once, he's not going to die again. So he's already died. He died on Passover. And the scapegoat was never sacrificed. Yashua was. To me, this is a real big, big uh, contradiction between that, that that belief. Because Yahshua was never, Yashua was sacrificed, the scapegoat was not. The scapegoat was called, is called the live goat. It was it was kept alive. Again, the sands of Israel were transferred to this goat and it was sent out alive and it remained alive in the wilderness. If Yahshua never died, well, we would be without a savior today. You know, if Yahshua represents anything during the day of atonement, I believe he's there, obviously. I think Yahshua is in, you know, pictured somehow, way in all the feast days. I believe that he probably represents a high priest. He's a high priest on the day of atonement, he's our high priest today and will be our high priest in the coming millennial reign. So again, based on all the evidence, you know, we believe that it, that it makes much, much more sense to apply the scapegoat, the live goat, to, to uh, Satan, to his binding, and not to uh, Yahshua and his death. And I pray that this message is, has been a blessing to you This day is so special for so many reasons. Again, going back just to the command we found in Leviticus 23, that it's a strict Sabbath of rest. It is a strict Sabbath of rest. The Jews, again, consider this day the holiest day of the year. And again, I would say for good reason, because Scripture seems to bear this out. It's a strict Sabbath of rest. Again, a day that we're to afflict our souls, to to look back, to understand that only through Yahweh's provision are we sustained. You know, without Yahweh's provision, we would not be sustained to recognize what it is to humble ourselves as a people before him. All of these are valuable and important lessons for this feast. So, again, I pray that this message and this day has really been a blessing to you. I know it's hard to fast, uh, especially for some people. Yeah, I'm okay with it for the most part nowadays. But, but I know, especially for the little ones, it's really hard for them to fast. My, my youngest is fasting for the first time. It's, it's hard to, uh, to see them fast, but uh, a complete fast anyway today. So, um, But, uh, you know, it's, it's for a reason. It's for a reason. And uh, certainly I'm sure Yahweh's pleased with all those observing his day today and, and uh, following in his command. We're going to our custom to um, offer the ironic blessing during the uh, feast days at the close of each high day. So if you would, if you can all stand, I'd like to uh, pronounce that blessing upon you, Today, Yahweh Rakeka Yahweh, Vayesh Mareka, Yair Yahweh Panav Eleka, Vekuneka, Yisah Yahweh Panav Ve VeYasim Eleka Shalom. Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Hallelujah.